alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. To the 79th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody, and I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. It's a uh, been a beautiful week in Minnesota. Surprisingly, I figured winter was coming, but uh, looks like they're holding off a few more, uh, at least a few more weeks. How's the weather in uh, Arizona been? It's doing good. It's a little bit cooler. It's warmer than the week that I came back, but it's definitely starting to get a tiny bit cooler. Are you? I was going to ask really quick. Are you guys seeing all of the smoke from the California fires up in your neck of the woods yet? I've seen it's made it. It's made its way pretty much out to the east coast. Um, I wouldn't say we've seen it, but the rumor is I was talking to one of my good friends Nick about it, and he said. That his sinuses have been acting up really bad, and my I've noticed mine have as, as well. And he speculates it might be because of the smoke and shit that's coming from California affecting the air here. I don't know if that's true or not, but kind of makes sense. Yeah, I well, I was editing last week's episode on Rothschild conspiracies, and I could hear it in my voice that, and I can feel it right now that my my nose has been stuffed up for the past couple of weeks. So I think that's what it is. Uh, I never get I never get allergies either. So yeah, it's definitely could be. I mean, that's a lot of toxic shit in the air. So who knows? Definitely. Anyway, Phil, I hear you have a story or news story to tell us. I do. I was uh, looking up some stories this morning. Uh, I actually caught on my news feed a crazy one. So here we go. Police raid in Vietnam finds more than three hundred thousand used condoms being packed for resale. Okay, is this like Jack Nicholson's <laughs> summer house or what? <laughs> Not quite. So apparently uh, police in Vietnam, just outside of Ho Chi Minh City, found a factory that had about 320,000 recycled condoms that they were cleaning and reforming to be resold. And they were also repackaging them. Okay, is this is this like a normal thing we do or? No. No, this is not normal. Okay. Well, I don't think anybody could get pregnant off of them. No, but I mean with STDs and you true, know, all true. That stuff <laughs> and fucking dick lice and all that shit. I, would, I wouldn't want to use a, a reused <laughs> condom. I think everyone would prefer them to be fresh. Is this a Duramax uh, company or what? Do we know the company? Like who, who, who are they doing this for? They, it's apparently like just black market shit. They were, you know, I suppose they probably got them from like a junkyard or a lot of, uh, if you ever watch any documentaries on like the sanitation or the sewage companies, basically they look down in the sludge and all that they see is used condoms down there. Okay, so don't buy black market condoms first off. I don't know why anybody would be doing that anyway because... I'm pretty sure condoms are fairly cheap anyway, right? Isn't it like 
$20 for a box of 20 of them or something? Yeah, condoms are pretty cheap. And if you are cash strapped enough, there's plenty of programs out there that'll give you free condoms. The state does not want poor people repopulating this planet with, you know, little poor people clones. So they will give free condoms out. So. <laughs> that sounds so bad when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounded terrible coming out of my mouth. But here's the thing. Okay, yes, in the United States, we have things like Planned Parenthood and all of that um, that will distribute free condoms. But around the world, they probably might not have the sa that same thing. Yeah, they really should have programs like that. I think maybe one of the big problems is a lot of the organizations that could help out, like charities are religion-based, and a lot of religion-based charities like wouldn't hand out free condoms well i'm mostly thinking of like the christian ones but. yeah yeah after i that missionary when i used to work at best buy i think i've talked about this when he came in and god he was just he wanted me to test out his projector and it was some guy saying essentially that jesus will cure aids and stuff <laughs> i don't think he's giving out condoms yeah no definitely it definitely affects their bottom line when people don't have more children. It's, you know, future profits and all. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know, and I know Planned Parenthood's under fire right now because people, I've seen so many alleged stories, okay, I'm air quoting here, where people are posting like they do 6 million abortions a day. I'm like, that's not even possible. No, that's that would be more... There's not that many pregnancies in the United <laughs> States to have 6 million abortions a day. There's not that many abortion doctors or there's not that many beds to do it on. There, There's a uh, in, in a neighboring city around here. There's a man and he's had this out in front of his lawn for as long as I can remember. It's an anti-abortion thing. And he he keeps changing the number on there. He has like. Since whenever there's been 98 billion abortions. I don't think so, buddy. Were they having abortions back in like the Stone Age? I don't. How, how would that be? I don't know. I, uh, he's nuts, clearly. Yeah, we don't even have 9 billion people like living on Earth right now. That's it's impossible. I don't know. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe, according to him, there would be that many if there wasn't that many abortions. Are you sure it's not just like a sar sarcastic sign and he's just no, trolling everyone? No, 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 absolutely not. There's a picture of Jesus and everything on there. Yeah, I bet. All right. Well, <laughs> we're on the hot seat right now talking about a very hot topic issue. So let's switch topics to our conspiracy here this week. Uh, Phil, have you ever heard of a young lady named Amelia Earhart? I believe I have heard something or another about her. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to be talking all about her today. And she is a man. She is an extraordinary woman. I'm just going to say that. But she did disappear under weird circumstances. So that is what we're going to talk about at the very end. But we're going to go through her whole life, kind of like you did with the Rothschilds. We need to understand Amelia. We need to understand everything about her life leading up to that disappearance there. All right. Amelia Mary Earhart was born July 24th, 1897. Great year, by the way. Oh, yeah. In Atchison, Kansas to Samuel Edwin Stanton and Amelia Amy Earhart. 
Her sister was Grace Muriel Earhart. Amelia was nicknamed Mealy or Millie. Okay, not not that original. I'm just going to throw that out there. Do you know what uh, Grace's uh, uh, nickname was? No, I don't. Pidge. 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 That's, that's, come on, guys. That is not what I name a person that I'm friendly with. That's, like, honestly, and I can talk to you about this, is when you're, you get constantly attacked by Pidgeotos or Pidgeots (laughs) in Pokemon, and you literally have to capture them so they quit attacking you, and you, you don't even want to spell their whole name, so you name them Pidge. That's what I was thinking. If you go to play Pokemon Red and you play one of those against one of those random trainers out in the forest, I imagine he nicknames his pigeon or Pidgey Pidge. That's what he <laughs> yeah. would nickname it. <laughs> the literal bloodbath you leave behind on that game of just dead <laughs> Pokemon everywhere. Dead Rattatas and Pidgeys everywhere. <laughs> you just kill everybody's goddamn Pokemon. Now, anyway... Interesting thing that might explain why Amelia strove to uh, complete some of her accomplishments later in life might have come from the fact that her mother didn't believe in raising her girls as, quote, nice little girls, which isn't normal for the time. Um, apparently, their mother, this is, okay, We hopefully we don't get any hate mail here, but her mother would allow them to wear bloomers. That was, girls do not wear bloomers at the time. Are bloomers, are those are like pants, right? Yeah, they're like, like you probably see a circus performer wear them nowadays. They're like parachute pants. The big puffy pants. Yeah, yeah. the big puff. Apparently girls, you if you were a girl in the 1800s, early 1900s, you did not wear bloomers. But they're, uh, her mother allowed them to. Well, the great documentary TV series, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Oh, yeah. She at, she at times would wear men, like men's pants when she needed to do something like ride horses or do something like that. Well, and mean, everyone kind of looked at her funny when they saw her. Uh, man, we it's only been 100 years, but man, we've we've escalated from pretty primitive beliefs, in my opinion. Yeah, we have definitely come a long way. And I think <laughs> it has to do with organized religion taking a big hit in the last hundred years. That is a very good point. Now, Amelia and her sister Grace's young girls love to explore the woods. They would climb trees, hunt rats with their rifles. I That's a small target to hit, by the way. Uh, yep. they, they would belly slam down the hill on their sleds. The girls were known for keeping worms, moths, a tree toad, and things like that. So basically... I guess you could kind of consider that tomboyish activities, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be considered a tomboy even in this day and age. Back then, they would have been considered like possessed almost. You know what like, I'm going to acting like this. You know what I'm going to do, Phil? So I'm going to ask my cousin Josh, who's the ultimate hillbilly, if no. maybe he is the reincarnation of Amelia. He could he, be. Like, when I. When I saw that part about hunting rats with rifles, I thought immediately of Josh. Yeah. Like, I bet Josh used to do that. <laughs> we need to get him to one whatever, however you figure out, out about your past lives, we need to get him there. He needs to access that Akashi record and figure <laughs> out who the fuck he was. Now, apparently in 1904, when Amelia would have been around seven years old, she had an experience that would shape her future. 
Now, Amelia had laid eyes upon a roller coaster in St. Louis that absolutely captivated her. So her uncle rigged up a homemade ramp that's starting point was on the roof of a tool shed. Amelia then rode down the ramp, which launched into the air and then crashed to the ground. Now, the story goes that Amelia emerged from the broken cart box, whatever you want to call it, with a bruised lip and a torn dress. But she loved the exhilaration of flying through the air. And she would tell her sister, oh, Pidge, it's just like flying. So they say that is where her love, I don't know if this is like an adrenaline thing or if she just liked the feeling of like flying, I guess. I I don't know how you describe that. Let me just say really quick something I noticed in there. As an uncle to uh, six of my nieces and nephews, that is definitely dangerous uncle behavior. That's (laughs) that's cool uncle. That's That's a very cool cool uncle. uncle, but yeah. I that th- definitely gets you supervised everything. If you <laughs> set up a ramp starting at the roof of the tool shed, that's fucking insane. <laughs> well, I know what you should be doing this weekend. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I don't think my brother would appreciate that too much. <laughs> In 1907, her father would take a job working for the Rock Island Railroad, but they would have to move to Des Moines, Iowa. Shout out, Phil. Here we go. (laughs) That's too bad. Now, Amelia, at the age of 10, would lay eyes upon her very first aircraft. The family was at the Iowa State Fair where they were offering rides on this plane. Her father actually tried to convince the daughters to take a ride in said plane, but being it was 1907, it looked pretty rickety and unsafe, and according to legend, I guess... Amelia would later describe the plane as a thing of rusty wire and wood and not interesting at all. And this is the last time that I was ever had airborne transportation, by the way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe if you blow up enough balloons and just kind of try to levitate yourself, you can get out of the state that way. But (laughs) I I was going to say that's pretty fucking early to have an airplane like to see an airplane at that in 1907. That's fucking insane. Iowa State Fair, man. Where you, That's the talk of the country. I'm guessing that they probably <laughs> witnessed that aircraft while eating fried butter on a stick. Prob- <laughs> Is that like the national food for the Iowa State Fair, butter on a stick? That's one of, a few years ago, that was one of the big things was they deep fried butter on a stick. Oh, man. How can you eat that? Yeah, for the people living out of country who are listening to our podcast, I was not exactly known for the most physically fit people. So, well, I I left out this part, Phil, but apparently the man with this aircraft they actually uh, tied him to a stake and burned him for witchcraft. So, I imagine as they should. <laughs> now, interestingly, Amelia wouldn't be enrolled in a public school until the age of twelve when she entered the seventh grade. I don't, maybe that was normal for the time, seems kind of weird to me. But, a little, yeah. But they all said that Amelia would spend hours reading from the family's library. So I would imagine her whole life, she's been a very intelligent young lady. Well, I imagine if her family had their own library, possibly she was homeschooled. Yeah, I, I didn't really include it in the notes here, but, and I didn't know this before looking into it, her family was very well off. 
Yeah, so she may have actually had private tutors if they were well off and intelligent. I, it very well could be. Maybe in Iowa, they uh, private tutors were a lot outlawed. I don't know. It's witchcraft tutors. I don't know. What do you think? Well, another thing too is they would have all at this time, 1907. It would have been all one-room schoolhouses. I mean, think of how many are just kind of hanging out like around. Well, even like there's one right next to your house and there's one right next to my house. So, you schools, know, those, you mean? those little one-room schoolhouses. Yeah. Oh, well, you mean the Amish ones? Is yours an Amish one? Wait, are you talking about in Iowa? In Iowa, yeah. Yeah. That where, was, you, where you grew up. Yeah, that was a, that was an Amish one. Oh, yeah. Mine, the one that I'm talking about around me was a, like an old one that wasn't being used anymore. But they were, they were all around. Yeah. Just, uh, just down the street from my parents' house that there's like a, they might've moved it now, but they used to be the Amish. God, what was it? Like first grade through eighth grade, I think. I think that was a school. All, all, they all taught them all in that one house. Yeah, well, if it's the Amish, I don't think that they go much further than eighth grade. <laughs> no, no. And that's, that's not a slight against them. I'm just saying I don't actually think that the Amish teach like much past like eighth or ninth grade. So, yeah, they don't want to go past there because they might realize that electri- electricity and cars are kind of cool. Yeah, the devil's work. <laughs> In 1914, Edwin Earhart moved the family to St. Paul, Minnesota, where he took a job at the Great Northern Railway. Amelia enrolled at Central High School. Now, I obviously live in St. Paul, Minnesota. I think Central is still there. I'm pretty sure it still exists today. Um, I don't know if it's the same building or anything, because obviously we didn't go to uh, high school here, but I know Central High School does exist. I just don't know if it's that exact Central High School. Yeah, and Minnesota actually does put pretty decent money into their education. So I'm guessing they have gotten new books since 1914. But if she would have got that in Iowa, I doubt they would change up the books. (laughs) They didn't need textbooks. They had Bibles. Yeah, we got Bibles. We got science books that definitely do not have dinosaurs on the cover. It's all good. (laughs) Now, sometime between 1915 and 1916, Amelia Earhart would move to Chicago with just the daughters, it sounds like. Interestingly, uh, she scouted the city to find the high school with the best science program for Amelia. She eventually found Hyde Park High School, and in 1916, Amelia would graduate from said high school. So that's, her mother is great, honestly. Yeah, her mother's for like for mothers of the time because you got to think she was probably born in the eighteen sixties or seven eighteen sixties or seventies. She's kind of like a pioneer woman in that getting her daughters to not be so you know like not conform, uh, with- not so conforming. Yeah, yeah, and getting her letting her daughters like do boy things, letting them do science programs, actually finding the best science program for her daughter. That's pretty fucking progressive like, pretty advanced pretty progressive yeah. that's the word i was thinking of progressive <laughs> yeah her her mother's great man i don't it's it like the science program i don't know if that was like a gender specific thing at the time i don't really know but they definitely she definitely wanted her daughters to excel in life and not just fit i assume the conform of the time was you're expected to be a housewife or yada 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 
Oh, in most cases at that time, it would have been gender specific, all men. And it's starting to change now to where more women are getting into like the science programs. But that's just because there's a push at like the younger ages in elementary schools to get girls into these programs instead of kind of talking them away from it, which would have happened back then. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I uh, thank God we don't live in this time period. Yeah, her mom probably would have, they probably would have tried to dissuade her mom from getting her kids into those programs. Well, I'm sure if this was Iowa, they would have tried to uh, try for witchcraft. Oh, I'm, I imagine <laughs> telling her to just send her to a nice finishing school so that she can meet a man and have some kids. Now, Amelia, throughout her life, had been keeping newspaper clippings or articles about successful women in job fields primarily dominated by men, which included film direction and production, law, advertisement, management, and mechanical engineering. So, Amelia herself, along with her mother, is very progressive. She wants to break through the, or I guess she wants to follow in the footsteps of successful women at the time. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think the, like all of those fields would have been pretty big. I know advertising uh, was a pretty big field back then. Film direction would have been like really brand new. There wouldn't have been a ton of, uh, it would have been just really starting in the, like the decade leading up to that time. So yeah, yeah. that's pretty, and they all would definitely would have been male dominated. Yeah. So Amelia, this is what I'm saying. Amelia is, I think, a woman to look up to because she didn't take no shit from any of, any of that stuff. No, definitely. Yeah, I'm finding out quite a bit about her. Actually, you don't really hear much about Amelia besides flying. That's the crazy thing I just realized. Oh, wait, we got we got a lot about her minus the flying. So let's get through it here. Now, during, right. during the winter of 1917, Amelia was in Toronto because of World War One, and Amelia would see all of the wounded soldiers returning from the war, she started to train as a nurse's aide for the Red Cross, then eventually would work with the Voluntary Aid Dis Detachment at Spendina Military Hospital. Uh, she mostly prepared food for the patients with special diets and handed out the necessary prescriptions to them. So she's kind of joining in, I guess, the war effort. What was... Since you know more about history, what would be the, I guess, Canada's uh, involvement in World War One? Would they have sent a lot of soldiers that would have gotten killed and such? Yes. So since Canada was a dominion of uh, United Kingdom, they definitely were sending soldiers. Uh, World War One, we talk about this quite a bit from Dan Carlin. Uh, World War One was a real meat grinder, and they just needed bodies. They needed more and more bodies. So 1917 would have been just the time that America was entering the war. So yeah, they would have been all over the all over the world from all of the British Dominion would have been sending bodies over to the fucking meat grinders on the mm. front line. So she so she definitely would have seen soldiers returning that were messed up and such. Oh yeah, definitely mangled bodies and yeah. <sighs> Now, Amelia was still working at the hospital during the Spanish flu epidemic in, eight, in 1918, helping those infected until she got sick herself in November of 1918 with pneumonia and, I can't, I don't know if I said, maxillary sinusitis. It, yep. Something in the sinuses. That's, 
Yeah. Since this was a pre-antibiotic era, Amelia would suffer sinus problems in relation to this for over a year. So just this symptoms she was suffering for for over a year. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, sinus problems are horrible. Can you imagine dealing with that for a fucking year? Yeah, one thing I notice whenever I have a cold is how much I didn't appreciate not having a cold. So having that, having sinus problems for a whole year would be fucking terrible. Well, I don't think I included it in here, but it sounded like she had to have multiple surgeries, which I cannot imagine a surgery in 1918 is that great. And it's almost sounded like they had to install a drain tube that came out of her cheek from her sinuses or something like that. Oh, Jesus, fuck. So they yeah, were. You're lucky. You're lucky if you don't die from infection from those fucking surgeries back then. Ugh, I know, right? And yeah. well, with the tube, it sounded like when she would fly, she would have to like tape over it. I don't know <sighs> if that's for like pressure or something, but but yeah, they she would have to like cover it up. Horrible, man. Horrible. I imagine they probably recommended that she didn't fly at all with, you know, that kind of problem. Yeah. God. I don't know. She's a brave woman. I'll I'll give her that. Yeah. But what the fuck do doctors know? (laughs) I don't listen to them either. (laughs) Reach for the stars. (laughs) In November of 1919, Amelia would enroll at Columbia University to do medical studies but would would quit within a year. Finally, on December 28th, 1920, in California, Amelia is about to finally take flight. Now, Amelia and her father visited a local airfield where they met a man named Frank Hawks. I hope that's his real name and he didn't just give that name to himself because that name is awesome. I was trying to, when I when I heard you say that, I was trying to think that myself, like, oh, is that his real name? Because... He's got to be a pilot with a name like that. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure at birth they just put you in a plane with a name like that. <laughs> they just gave him a pair of those fucking goggles and the leather cap. Like, you, we know you're going to be a pilot, boy. Here you go. <laughs> uh, now, Frank Hawks would give Amelia a ride on a plane. Amelia said, by the time I got two or 300 feet off of the ground, I knew I had to fly. So... I guess Frank Hawks, thank you, man, for setting Amelia on the path here. So uh, determined to learn for herself, Amelia worked for different jobs, including a photographer, a truck driver, and a steneographer. Eventually, she managed to save up $1,000 that she could then use to purchase flying license. Her teacher was named Anita Nita Snook. Uh, they would fly a Curtis J.N. for Canuck. I guess that's the name of the plane. Kind of racist there. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Now, apparently, this is when Amelia kind of got that also familiar appearance that we all know her about today. She purchased a leather jacket that she apparently slept in for three days straight just to give it that, that worn look. She started to dress like other female flyers at the time. And she also cut her hair short, which was common with the female pilots of the time. I don't know. I guess the pilots, the lady pilots all had like a distinct look. And she kind of did a overnight or I guess she did a transformation of herself. I think that's kind of cool. 
Yeah, definitely would be a good idea to cut your hair short if you were getting into the pilot game, just because you wouldn't want that hair getting either caught up in your face or getting caught up like out in the windows or who knows what kind of like moving around machinery it were in those planes at the time. Good. That is a good point. I kind of wondered about the short haircut thing, and I guess that is probably what it is. Yeah, it's uh, $1,000 for flying lessons. That's how much it would probably cost you today. That's a lot of fucking money. But I suppose there wasn't a lot of people doing it back then. No, I uh, maybe I because she got taught by a, a another woman, obviously. I don't know, maybe getting taught by another woman was more expensive. I don't know. Maybe they I assume they just didn't have a lot of planes. Probably not. And I imagine that the plane that she was well after World War One, like the technology really kind of went through a boom after World War One. So I'm guessing that plane was a hell of a lot better than the thing that she had seen at the state fair <laughs> when she was a kid. Most definitely. Is it just me or when I hear the name Anita Snook, like I'm just envisioning like a hardcore ex-Russian woman with an eye patch. I imagine someone from New Jersey with a drinking problem <laughs> and anger management issues. That's who that's who I when I hear the word snook. Well, now that you mentioned, I'm I'm assuming the flight lessons five hundred dollars. Five hundred of that other dollars is for the alcohol consumption for the pilot's teacher. Oh, definitely. You can't fly sober. No, absolutely this not. Might be your last day on Earth. You can't do that shit. In the summer of 1921, Amelia would purchase a used bright yellow Kinner Airster biplane. She would nickname the Canary. By the way, we're gonna. She loves the color yellow. I don't mm -hmm. know why, but she just everything is like yellow with her. So I guess that's cool. Yeah, I mean, really, if. If it's your plane, it's your thing. And if it became kind of like her distinct thing, maybe she knew that she'd become like one of these famous female airmen. Hey. Or I wonder if she knew she'd become like the most famous one. Well, once we get to that point, um, you can speculate, okay? All right. On October 22nd, 1922, Amelia would set the world record for being the first female pilot to reach an altitude of 14,000 feet. Seems kind of high for 1922. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I wonder if they actually had the ability to pressurize the cabin or like pump in oxygen at the time. Because 14,000 no feet without those things would be a hell of a fucking like flying experience. What do you think? They just have to hold their breath while they're up there or what? <laughs> or they just start getting really dizzy. <laughs> Takes a shot of vodka while she's up there. Relax. Yeah. Her. On May 15, 1923, Amelia became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. So that's pretty sweet. Because so of the... She, oh, sorry. So, oh, I was going to say quick. So she flew 14,000 feet a whole, what is it, nine months before she actually got her pilot's license. Yeah, I guess so. They probably wow. weren't paying much. They probably weren't really asking people for the pilot's <laughs> license at the time. I would assume. I don't know. Yeah, and I imagine at the airport, they probably weren't exactly checking people's credentials at those dirt lots where they basically just had like a dirt runway. No, you know, there's just some drunk ass old guy passed out there being like, all right, have fun on your flight. 
some drunk World War One vet with yeah. tremors from, <laughs> from the shell shock. Now, because of the financial crisis in the 1920s, Amelia would be forced to sell the Canary. She would then buy a yellow Kissel Speedster automobile she would name the Yellow Pearl. Again, she loves her yellow. Oh, yeah. Eventually, Amelia would drive her car to Boston and enroll at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But soon after, Amelia's mother could no longer afford the tuition fees. So Amelia would have to work as a teacher and then a social worker. Interesting thing about this, right? Both of those jobs now, especially a social worker, you have to have a shitload of college, I guess, education to get those jobs. Yeah, and it's one of the most thankless jobs. Oh, God, You're yes. Overworked, overpressured, underpaid. Uh, it's crazy. You Like, she went to Columbia and MIT. Like, nowadays, if you heard someone went to Columbia and MIT, you would think, like, holy shit, that person, one, for one thing, that if they're not rich, they must be a fucking genius to get in both of those schools. Well, I, I feel like she's kind of a mixture of both, or at least her parents were, but it sounded like... Because of the financial crisis, they kind of must have uh, hit hard times like everybody else at the time. Oh, yeah, I imagine. Eventually, she got herself back into the aviation world, becoming a member of the American Aeronautical Society Boston chapter, eventually becoming elected as the vice president. I can't imagine too many ladies at the time got that high of a rank within something like that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing that, and she would have been really young at the time too. But I mean, I imagine it was also a young person's game flying at the time. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm sure. Wouldn't have been a whole lot of old old men doing it. So, <laughs> well, if they were old, I'm sure they died in said plane crashes. I'm sure they died in one of those 1905 shit boxes she saw at the county at the <laughs> state fair. You know, there was those old bastards who're like. I don't need that new horseshit technology. This old rusty wire cage is just fine. <laughs> what is that? A closed cabin? The seat belts? I don't need a fucking seat belt. <laughs> Bunch of pussies you are. <laughs> you just hold on real tight. Take a swig of vodka. You're good. That plane ain't even smoking. I don't know how you can drive that thing. <laughs> Finally, in 1927, Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic sparked the interest of Amy Guest, who wanted to become the first woman to do the exact same thing. Now, Amy decided it was just too much for her to handle, but she offered to sponsor somebody else to do it, but she needed a woman that fit the right image to be the, I guess, face of the person who's going to accomplish this, right? So yeah. in April of 1928, she contacted Amelia Earhart and asked her if she wanted to do it. Of course, Amelia, I don't think, was going to turn down an opportunity like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's crazy that uh, this pilot, Amy Guest, like, I, I wonder if she had some kind of medical problem, or I wonder why she wanted, like, she wanted to sponsor it, but didn't want to do it herself. Honestly, it kind of just sounded like she thought she was too, like, she was too old to, to complete it. Okay. Yeah, possibly. Like, like wow. she was just too old and she didn't think her body could handle the trip or something like that. That's kind of what I got out of the information, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Well, you've flown 
across the Atlantic in a jet. And even that 10-hour flight is fucking hell on earth. Oh, yeah. I couldn't even imagine back then in piloting one of those planes. It just what like a with just a normal non-jet engine. I couldn't imagine it. It'd be fucking hell. Well, let me tell you about who Amelia had a ride with. <laughs> On uh, June 17th, 1928, Amelia Earhart, another pilot named Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot slash mechanic named Lewis Gordon departed from Trapassi Harbor in Newfoundland in a Folk- Foker F-8B named Friendship. I don't, I don't like that name for a plane. I'm being honest with you. No, a, a, honestly, a plane. You gotta, you gotta give it some bite. You know? Yeah, not friendship. Come on, this is like the goddamn care. It's the name of a Care Bear. You can't be naming it that. That's like if you buy a boat and give it like the name of your wife or something like that. It's like, oh man, what do you? You had the opportunity to put something cool on the side of that. Yeah, boat. you got you got name it like Bill Belichick. What's his boat? Seven Rings, I think, or something. <laughs> no, it, it's. I think it is literally called Six or Seven Rings. It's yeah, ridiculous. it was always cool when you like when you walk along a harbor and see like the names of everyone's boat. It's pretty cool. <laughs> we need a sub D boat. That's all I know. Yeah, call it the call it the Satiro Five or something <laughs> like that. Now, exactly twenty hours and forty minutes later, they landed at Bury Port in South Wales. So they completed the flight. Now, this is when Amelia Earhart's fame really took off. She was able to then use her celebrity status to finance her future aviation-related activities, which Amelia seemed to really dive headfirst into competitive flying. So I think this is kind of where this is kind of where we meet the Amelia that everybody knows today. She completed the flight, and then she was just like a sensation around the world. Yeah, that would have been the world's probably their first image really of Amelia Earhart like their first time hearing about her when she did like this feat because you said she was the first woman to pilot across the Atlantic yep so she would have yeah she would have been like pretty famous for that I I didn't include it but I think after they landed in Wales like a few days later they went to I think London and then uh, whoever the royal family congratulated her and all of that and then when she came back to America she was obviously a big sensation and all of that, so that's great. Yeah, definitely treated to some of that terrible food that we always talk about. <laughs> now, in 1928, Amelia became the first woman to complete a solo flight across the North American continent and back. So I guess it's, I don't what what's a bigger I, flight, you think? I think that this would be across the North American continent and back. It's, it sounded like coast to coast, kind of, back and forth. I think that what I mostly knew her for was her flight across the Atlantic, but I have heard about her flying across the United States. So, well, I, I, the Atlantic, I think, would be more dangerous, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, there's nowhere to land out there, especially. I mean, unless you, because they wouldn't have had any. Trying to think of, there's an island um, off the west coast of Portugal that. Is like an emergency landing point, but I don't even know if there was an airport back then. The Azores. Mm, I I highly doubt there was, but maybe. Yeah, I doubt. I don't even know if there were Portuguese there at that time. So, (laughs) 
1931, Emilius set the world record flying a Pitcairn PCA-2 borrowed from the Beechnut Chewing Gum Company. She had reached the altitude of 18,415 feet. Now, it sounded like male or female. She, she just set the world record. Yeah, that's... I've never heard about, like, her... The... Like, reaching these high elevations. I've never heard about these records before. Yeah. This is something new. Uh, I... I, it's pretty crazy. Like yeah. you said, like you said, they had to have some sort of technology at the time that allowed them to do that, wouldn't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I imagine she must have took that plane to its fucking limits, though. I mean, once you got up that high, I wonder how bad that thing was, you know, like how how well because the engines back then they needed oxygen to like just like a car engine now it needs oxygen to run so i wonder if they got up that high and then the engine just cut out because of lack of oxygen i i i don't know you know what's yeah. funny though phil the beech nut chewing gum company like they're always sponsoring her i do they even make gum still i i've never heard of them at all <laughs> it might be something that we need to be, bring back but from just from the sound of the name i bet it's terrible i it doesn't sound great but they loved Amelia, I guess. Um, now, around the same time, Amelia became involved with the 99s, which was an organization of female pilots providing moral support and, and the advancement of female aviation, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I wonder what does it say at all what the 99s is is like kind of like stands for? I, 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 I don't know, unfortunately. But I. OK, yeah, it's it's just I wonder if. Was she like the leader of this group or I think she just I would my guess would be because she was such a celebrity, she helped bring the 99s into the forefront, which then would allow more people to get involved, which then would make more female pilots and such. Oh, yeah, definitely I, I a think. really good cause. For yeah, something to be involved with. It's kind of like when you put LeBron James in front of Sprite. Then all of a sudden, everybody starts drinking Sprite. Yeah, even if they hate the taste of Sprite, they still buy it just because LeBron James is seen with it. But, you know, I what else? Amelia, it sounded like Amelia and um, Lindbergh, basically them working together helped set up or like start the groundwork for commercial flight that we all use today, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, pretty thankful for that, though I wish... Uh... It could be a little bit more like it was back in the 70s with the smoking and people didn't taking off their shoes and stuff like that. I I have a feeling Amelia would be opposed to the uh, clustered seating that airplanes have now. Oh, yeah. Well, especially during this fucking pandemic time, stuffing people in those tin cans just like nothing. Right. Now, Amelia would eventually marry a man named George Putnam, dorky ass name on february 7 1931 it's funny because they had like an article saying that he's she didn't take his last name obviously but he would be referred to as george Earhart. wow that is pretty fucking progressive for that time period i'm sure he didn't take any shit from any of his friends for doing that <laughs> well she's the famous one right that is true, but could I couldn't even, even nowadays, and I'm a pretty progressive fella, even nowadays, if one of my buddies 
took his wife's last name, I might give him some shit. Look, I'm if you I'll say this, you do whatever you want. I did know <laughs> a guy who did take his wife's last name because he hated his family so much. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. If, if, see, if that person said that, like, oh, no, or they hate their last name or yeah. they hate their family, I'd be like, oh, OK, never mind. Yeah, it's sometimes you got to do it. But uh, she's obviously very famous at the time. Now, on May 20th, 1932, Amelia set off to complete the trans transatlantic solo flight, just as Charles Lindbergh had five years prior. She took off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, in her single-engine Lockheed Vega 5B. Seems like Lockheed was, like, kind of the main company back then. I Do they still make planes, do you know? Yeah, Lockheed Martin. Um, oh, okay. They, they combined with another company. Yeah, it would have been um, Howard Hughes's company also. Gotcha. Would have been one of the big ones back then, I imagine. What was his planes called, do you know? Oh, God. I forgot what his... Mm, I know that he was big with TWA, I think, but I forgot what it was like Hughes Aeronautical or something like that. I'd have to look it up. Gotcha. Now, 14 hours and 56 minutes later, she landed in Derry, North Ireland. So my understanding of this is within just a few years, they have cut off. What is it? Five hours? Yeah. Five, six hours off of the trip. So yeah. Like you said, the the technology of the planes must be rapidly accelerating. Yeah, 1931, um, you would have had, what is it? The Germans would have been into the game too. Uh, just coming off of their defeat of World War One. they were trying to figure out ways that they could get around the, uh, the military restrictions and the Luftwaffe was one of the things that they were trying to improve on, that and tanks. So mm. it it would have been uh yeah there would have been a and British too the British were also really big into like engineering and getting planes to be better and the Japanese later on uh, well we'll be talking about them shortly yeah I figured <laughs> now she Amelia became the first woman to fly this solo nonstop uh flight across the Atlantic. She would then receive a di- distinguished flying cross from Congress, the Cross of Night of the Legion of Honor from the French government. Dude, you got to condense that title there, by the way, Mr. French government. <laughs> and the gold medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover. So she got a lot of praise for pulling that off. And that is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'm guessing that the cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, that probably, like the name probably sounds a lot better in French. Yeah, probably it's like three words in French. Three words and it's a lot more poetic, but yeah. <laughs> On January 11th, 1935, Earhart became the first first aviator to fly solo from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California. Hell yeah, go Raiders. Yeah, and uh, Oakland would have actually been kind of a nice town back then, I'm guessing. Well, so. uh, yeah, apparently it's becoming a nicer town now. Yeah. Well, weren't they just on that football show? Yeah. Uh, Hard Knocks? Yeah, they're, yeah, it doesn't sound like as, I don't want to say dangerous of a town as it used to be, but it's apparently becoming a lot nicer, but maybe too nice to where people can't live there anymore. Yeah, I think they actually just moved the 
warrior, the uh, Golden State Warriors out of Oakland. Oh, really? So now they don't have any teams. Nope, they don't have any teams anymore. Well, that sucks. Now, between 1930 and 1935, Amelia had set seven had set seven women's speed and distance aviation records in a variety of different aircrafts, including the Kinner Airster, the Lockheed Vega, and the Pitcairn Auto Giro. I don't even know what that last one is, but she, I didn't really mention it too much, but she did a lot of, tried to get involved in a lot of racing, stuff like that. So I think that's where she set a lot of those records. Yeah, I think... It might be kind of like the word like auto gyro. Gotcha. Okay. Kind of like that thing that keeps things level gyros. Gotcha. You're probably right. Yeah. It's, I mean, she would have been right. Like flying aircraft at the time would have been like the cutting edge of technology. Like there still would have been old people who couldn't like believe that they were seeing an aircraft at all. (laughs) And it's not like really people could get into commercial aviation. Like, actually buy a ticket to fly a plane like fly on a plane unless they were very rich yeah yeah that that's a good point for some reason when you said old people became like they couldn't explain flying crafts or whatever i just picture a bunch of people in iowa like holding their crucifix out out the window being like be gone witch be gone <laughs> holding up torches at a passing over aircraft <laughs> just hissing at it oh i could see him doing i could see him doing it still today oh yeah Definitely. In 1937, Amelia started to work on completing the first around-the-world flight. Although others had completed it, her flight was going to be the longest at 29,000 miles following the equatorial route. So I guess she wants to set the most miles traveled in a plane. And this is kind of where things start to go really sour. So that's... Do you like the equatorial route? That would be the like the longest you could take, probably, wouldn't it? I, it sounds like it. We're, yeah, we're gonna kind of learn the path she travels through all the different countries, so you can kind of see what her plan for the trip was. Yeah, I'm guessing that if you took like the shortest route, you'd probably just go around the North Pole, like around around the Arctic, and just. Make it like a seven-hour flight. Just go around it quick. <laughs> Saying you went around the world. Basically like uh, Barry Sotero flies on a daily basis. Yeah. Oh, he could make that flight in probably eight <laughs> seconds and travel a thousand years in the past. <laughs> on March 17th, 1937, Amelia and her crew made their first attempt, starting off the trip going from Oakland, California to Honolulu. Unfortunately, at Luke Field on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor, her customized Lockheed Electra 10E had a problem. Now, the mo- the customizations included additional fuel tanks, and most of the cabin w- windows had been blanked out. I'm assuming that makes them more aerodynamic so they could go faster. I would assume that's why they did that. You know, block out the windows or whatever? Oh, like actually put panels over the windows? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. That's uh, that's what I'm assuming. But anyway, now during her, uh, takeoff, her forward landing gear collapsed, causing both propellers to hit the ground, and the belly of the plane skidded along the runway. So I guess at least they crashed during takeoff and not <laughs> while they're in the air. Or, or landing. Yeah, or landing too. So 
obviously that put a strike in that uh the first attempt eventually amelia would make a second and deadly attempt at this flight now on june 1st 1937 amelia earhart and her co-pilot frank noonan took off from miami florida i'm assuming after a little clubbing made several stops in south america then they traveled to africa then the Indian subcontinent, and then to Southeast Asia. So you can kind of see the path they're taking there. It's weird that they went really south and then over east, right? Yeah, a little bit. I kind of wonder why they did that. Because you would think they would just fly out from where they normally go. And possibly, I don't know really about like the maybe like the wind currents or something. Maybe they get a boost from flying down south like that. Well, the... Okay, the equatorial line starts in South America, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So, so they wanted to fly over the equator. That I mean, that, that's what I'm guessing. I, I'm not entirely certain. On July 29th, they would arrive at Ley, New Guinea. At this point, they had completed 22,000 miles and had only 7,000 of the miles left, which basically was just for them to make it over the Pacific. On July 2nd, 1937, around midnight, Amelia and Fred departed from Leif Airfield. The plan was to land in Honolulu, then head over to Oakland, California. So they're kind of doing it in reverse from where they started the last time. Yeah, they're going the other way this time. Still cursed, though, I'll tell you that much. Apparently, Honolulu is just a cursed place you should stay away from for them. (laughs) Around 3 p.m. laytime... Earhart reported her altitude at 10,000 feet, but they would reduce altitude due to thick clouds. Around 5 p.m., Earhart reported her altitude as at about 7,000 feet and speed at 150 knots. Their last known position reported was near the Nukumanu Islands about 800 miles into their flight. Now, the U.S. Coast Guard had sent their ship the USCGC Itasca to Howland Island to assist Amelia in her trip. She would be able to communicate with the ship because her Electra had been equipped with a spe- with special radio devices. This is, keep in mind, her plane has these special radio devices and this is the only way she can communicate with the ship down below. Otherwise, normal planes can't do this, okay? Around. Yep. Around 6.14 a.m., the ship started to hear a transmission that she was now within 200 miles. Amelia was apparently whistling into the microphone so the ship could could hone in on her signal. But the ship could not tune into her plane's frequency, which was at 3,105 kilohertz. Why this is important is because Amelia needed to use the ship's direction finder. Otherwise, they would have to try to use celestial navigation to try to find their way to Honolulu, which, from what I was reading, sounds exceedingly hard to do in a plane. Are you familiar with celestial navigation at all? Yeah, so it's actually what the like the early... The people who navigated on the waters in boats, they would use... Like basically the stars at night yeah. to try to find where they were going. Yeah. So like you said, I was kind of reading essentially what it sounded like is the plane would have a sextant 
and you'd have to match that with the horizon and then it'd give you a bunch of numbers and then you could kind of tell kind of where you were at or something like that. Sounded very confusing. Yeah, that's the thing about when you go to a different part of the planet that you're used to, too, it you get like the stars are a different view than you would be used to. So if you're if you're south of the equator, you see a whole different set of stars than you would if you were used to being north of the equator. So even if you were really good at reading the stars north of the equator, you see other completely different like constellations than you're used to. Right. So Yeah, I would imagine that'd be disorienting. Yeah, but I imagine she has to have like star maps, you would think, in order to get that done. So. Yeah, I, but the, I don't, maybe they weren't preparing for that because they were expecting to be able to communicate with the, the ship or the Coast Guard ship, which from my understanding is the Coast Guard can hear her completely fine, but for some reason they cannot talk to her to to assist her, which is where the problems are kind of happening. Okay, gotcha. Maybe the ship has better, like, more power available to be able to, like, take in, but maybe her small plane doesn't have that kind of same power to amplify, like, the the signal coming into her. Right. I wonder if it's from her plane, the problem. I I, I don't know. Like, some of the quotes from the, the people that were on the ship were like, we're sweating bullets, dude. Like, we're, we're trying to assist her in navigating her plane, but it's like we just cannot establish communication with the plane at all. So there's like, it's just like this feeling of helplessness because you can't do anything. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Around 6.45 a.m., they received another request from Amelia's aircraft. And at this point, they estimated she was about 100 miles out from the ship's location. The ship's logs between 7.30 and 8.40 a.m. reads... Earhart on NW says running out of gas, only half hour left. Can't hear us at all. We we hear her and are sending the 3105 ES 500 same time consistently. At 7:42 a.m., it reads K H A Q Q. That's Earhart's plane. I don't even know what's K L N G. I-T-A-S-C-A, we must be on you, but cannot see you, but gas is running low. Been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a thousand feet. Now, this is a big thing that Amelia only didn't load her plane to maximum capacity because she loaded the plane with less fuel so she could travel to the next fuel up location at a faster rate. That's what it sounded like she did. So she really needed to land at this point. Otherwise, she's going to be fucked. And I think if she was flying at a thousand feet, the lower down you fly, the more fuel that you're going to burn up. Right. Because it's harder to fly at lower elevations. So if not only she has less fuel, but she's also flying lower, then she's really fucked when it comes to fuel. Well, what it sounds like is she had to fly lower because the clouds were blocking everything. And I'm assuming because she couldn't establish uh, communication with the ship, she thought if she flies lower, maybe she could see the ship. Yes. Yeah, definitely. All right. Now, at 8.43 a.m., this is her very last transmission we will ever hear from Amelia. We are on the line 157337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 
6210 kilocycles. So I'm assuming that maybe she, it kind of sounds like she tried to change channels to try to get them to try that one. Try to get a better signal. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, we know from this point, we'll never, ever hear from Amelia Earhart ever again. And there were extensive searches, like extensive searches, like the president sent people. They couldn't find a single shred of evidence of the plane or bodies of either Amelia or Fred. So this is kind of where we're getting to the point, like what happened to him? You think they would be able to find the slightest glimpse of the plane or a body or like something that was on the plane or anything, right? Yes. Yeah. The problem is too, it's a really big ocean and there was no satellites. Right. It's another, yeah. Now on a diving expedition in August of 2018, divers with Project Blue Angel said the sunken plane matched certain characteristics of Earhart's plane, a Lockheed Electra 10E. The team also found a glass disc that could possibly match the light lens from the front of their plane. They believe that pieces of the plane they had found, which are now completely covered in coral, by the way, could possibly be Amelia's Lockheed Electra 10E. So within the last two years, they found a plane that's obviously grown into the coral that they think is Amelia's plane, but they cannot be 100% certain that it's her plane. I mean, technically, it could be any plane. Well, thanks to climate change and ocean pollution, all of that coral should get blown away pretty quick. <laughs> so I think in the next couple of years, we could actually see that plane down there. Um, Phil, I want to say other thing about finding the um, plane and stuff during the search efforts, right? So... You got to remember that I should I should have gave you a map, but essentially from where Asia kind of branches off into the islands, um, she's not that far out from there where her plane goes missing. So there's okay. plenty of islands around there. So it's not like she's in the absolute middle of the Pacific. She's almost just off of the coast of mainland and there's islands all over. And then that's when she goes missing. Yeah, so I'm looking at the map, and I do see what you're talking about. It is a little bit further off of the uh, like Australia, Oceania part. But yeah, there are definitely uh, like little barrier islands scattered about there. Yeah, so I get. I mean, I guess technically she could have been lost at any of them, but you think they would be able to find something after all these years? Yeah, some sort of wreckage. Uh, it definitely is, I mean, it would have to be out in deeper water, too, so. Right. But, well, let's get into the conspiracies here, and we'll see if any of these kind of uh, hit home with you. So I'm kind of starting with the most likely ones, and then we'll move to the craziest ones, okay? All right. Now, the mo- the most obvious one is her airplane simply ran out of gas, she couldn't establish contact with the ship, and her plane crashed into the Pacific Ocean, killing herself and her co-pilot, Fred Noonan. So that's pretty self-explanatory. It's probably the most obvious thing that happened, but uh, I guess we can't confirm that's what happened. What do you think about that one? Yeah, that definitely would be the most obvious one. I mean, it's just, 
you can imagine it happening even nowadays plane runs out of gas and just fucking crashes into the ocean i don't yeah. know i know you would in your mind you think that a plane crashing on water has a much higher chance of survival than if it crashes on land but i mean i don't know much about aviation i imagine both are just as bad i've heard that when you're going like a really high rate of speed and you hit the water you might as well be hitting the land yeah just because of how hard you hit it yeah yeah i've heard that before as well i mean i'd prefer neither of them but i'm assuming (laughs) (laughs) yes uh have you seen the movie open water yes i have yeah so maybe that i hope they didn't have to go through that sort of scenario but uh Oh, fucking sharks and everything? Well, I mean, if you can, you don't have anything you can do except for basically float out there and hope that somebody comes and gets you. Yeah. Sounds and horrible. I imagine there wasn't like GPS homing signals or nothing no. that you could deploy at that time at all. So, yeah, you were just hoping that a search plane finds you. Ugh, sounds horrible. Now, the next conspiracy is kind of along the same lines, except her plane was going down, running out of gas but they managed to land on a random island or maybe they crashed on the island or if they landed there safely, maybe it was a deserted island that's just nobody knew about. Some believe she might have actually landed on Gardner Island accidentally instead of Howland Island. Now, Gardner Gardner Island is now called Nikamaru Island, something like that. And this is about 400 miles south of Howland Island. Now, this kind of makes sense because if she didn't have the direction finder from the ship, then maybe she was, like you said, you turn the plane just a little bit and you're getting off of course. And now she's 400 miles south instead of where she wants to be. And at the time, that island was controlled by the Japanese. And what are the Japanese... (laughs) about to do just on the horizon yeah exactly i mean america and japan at this time weren't at war but the diplomatic situation was rapidly declining 1937 yeah uh that that kind of leads me into i guess we can kind of mix these next two conspiracies together was she captured by the japanese if she did land at one of these islands okay Could she have possibly been kept as a POW or just straight up killed? Some think, some speculate now that she was captured by the Japanese and executed that they then used as propaganda for their upcoming war effort. Like basically saying these Americans are sending spies onto our land or into our country or whatever. And then it includes the picture that people kind of point to do you see that there yes i do so they think that lady sitting there is amelia earhart yeah it uh it's it's a grainy picture and it's taken you can only see the person's back and the side of their head uh it's person has short hair and a slight build Mm. so i could definitely see how you would think it's amelia earhart well i mean the more i guess relevant prevalent thing here is it's a Looks to be a white woman with uh, Asians everywhere, essentially. Yes. So yeah. I, I, it, it's you could you could never actually tell if that was her or not, obviously. But in the series of events that follows this, it, you could see it happening, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's 
it's definitely a pretty intriguing picture. I it could also be a man. It's it could be anyone. It's it's just so the photo is it's like one of those photos that the old timey photos that they took of UFOs where you look at it and you're just like, God, that could be anything. You know, I mean, it does have the same body structure as David Hasselhoff. So, <laughs> you know, that's always a possibility. Yeah, you can never count out it being David Hasselhoff. That's true. In any picture, really. <laughs> Don't the Japanese love him now, or is that the Germans? That's. I think that's the Germans. They mm. love David Hasselhoff. <laughs> okay. So how do you feel about that one, Phil? Um, I. It's pretty... It's not exactly out there for... In hindsight, we know exactly... I mean, they knew kind of what the Japanese were all about back then, too. But, yeah, I mean, she easily... Because they couldn't find their way because of the dense cloud cover and no radio communications, they could have easily gone off track and landed on this island. Hmm. I mean, it's not out of the question. Um, now, the the next conspiracy here kind of correlates with um, with being captured by the Japanese as well. Some think that Amelia and Fred were actually. The whole trip around the world was just a cover because they were actually doing like spy plane stuff for the U.S. government and they weren't ever actually planning on going to Holland Island. They were actually doing a mission for the U.S. government doing surveillance of the Japanese island installations. But Mm -hmm. if they were spying on them, something went awry, they were shot down or they were forced to land and then they were captured by the Japanese. Yeah, I mean... Who knows, really? That's, I don't know. They were using like all different sorts of means, like having a celebrity fly, like using the cover of flying around the world would have been pretty crazy. Um, having all of that just to do this. I could see like the possibility of it. It'd make a great movie. Yeah, but, it would, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, I I don't know how, I guess we'd have to know how, uh, invested uh, in the U.S. government, Amelia was. I don't think she was that invested. I think she just wanted to fly and set records and, you know, prove prove that uh, women can do any job and all that stuff. Yeah, unless it was this Fred Noonan here, her co-pilot, unless maybe he was involved and they were just going to do a quick fly around and then land in Howland Island. Yeah, I I don't I don't know. It's just, it's very, now that I look at it, most of these conspiracies are revolving around uh, the Japanese killing them, basically, but... uh, Yes. We'll move on. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yes, that is, like, a lot of the conspiracies I've heard in the past do have to do with the Japanese. Yeah. Either either finding the, the, um, the wreckage or finding the actual plane or shooting down the plane. And not telling America because of the like the heated diplomatic situation between the two countries. Right. So, I mean, it, it's weird because the timelines fit so well. You know what I'm saying? Like her going missing. You, you've got this uh, political climate between the two of them that's rising. Pearl Harbor being bombs not that far away. Like, you know. Yes. Yeah, I wonder also... A lot of these islands around in that area, I wonder if there would have been like you do hear about islands having primitive cultures back then. Um, Some of the American 
you know, like the U.S. Navy would actually go to these islands and offer them gifts to kind of keep them from attacking installations or kind of keep them on their side. I wonder if she possibly like they could have landed in one of those smaller islands around this area, too. I, I don't. It's very possible. Is this where that one island is where? OK, they 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 basically attack anybody who comes on their land, you know, and, oh. and the guy with came there with the Christian Bible thinking he could convert them. I believe that's in the Indian Ocean. OK, yeah. And they yeah. ended up killing him and eating him or something. Yeah, that's more the like India, like Africa, like that region, not the Pacific. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure the exact location, but I know it's not in this area. Mm, OK, well, let me move on to the next one here now. Some people think Amelia did crash, but maybe she survived. In 1970, author Joe Class released a book called Amelia Earhart Lives, where he believes that she crashed, but was recovered by the Japanese and held as a POW until the end of World War II. She was then returned to the United States and moved to New Jersey under a new identity Ooh. of Irene Bolum. Okay, how are you feeling about this? Uh, how I feel about it is the only thing worse than being held by the Japanese as a POW is then having to move to New Jersey. <laughs> wow. Here's the Not thing. Good. Why Why would someone as famous as her all of a sudden be like, I just want to be Irene Bolum? Well, you would have went through hell as a Japanese POW True. all the way from 1937 to 1945. You would not be anywhere near the same person. As when you were first captured. That that's very true. Now, apparently there is a real person named Irene Bolum, and she ended up filing a lawsuit against the author because he was slandering her name or whatever. I don't that's exactly I, I was gonna say that's exactly what Amelia Earhart would do. To throw <laughs> him off the scent. To throw him off the scent. Okay, maybe that maybe that's Phil's fifty fifty right there. <laughs> now let's go to my favorite one. Some people speculate that this particular region of the world is known for alien activity. Maybe Amelia and Fred ended up going through a wormhole or something similar to what happens in the Bermuda Triangle or she was captured by aliens. What did you call this area? The Dragon's Triangle? Dragon Triangle. Yeah. Yep. Maybe she went in a wormhole. Maybe she went to another time period. I don't know. Whatever happens in the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, definitely alien activity. Um, they're called uh, World War II. They're called Foo Fighters. Yeah. And there was a lot of this activity that was ramped up. Uh, well, basically because there was a lot more planes out in the ocean seeing this shit. So, yeah. All right, Phil. So what, which, which theories here are calling to you? I really like uh, the theory that she actually survived the plane crash and was held as a POW and then kind of went off the radar after world war two and just moved to New Jersey and retired. Okay. Kind of like that one from, okay. 1945 and she's born in 1897. She would, she would have been 48 years old. Not that old. No. Yeah. She would, uh, she would definitely have a lot of years ahead of her if she had survived. Um, also obviously number two is she just fucking, they, the plane crashed and they both died and, there was never any records recovered. Yeah, that I I hate to say it. I would either say, yeah, it just crashed or they landed on a deserted island and perished, or she was captured by Jap captured by the Japanese. I like those ones. 
it's a very tragic event, unfortunately, but as you've heard, uh, I hope a lot of people are like you and I, where we learned a lot more about Amelia and how absolutely of an amazing woman she was for the time period. Yeah. Um, another theory that doesn't get talked a lot about, uh, that another theory that doesn't get talked enough about is there was actually an episode of Star Trek Uh-oh. where, yeah, exactly. So apparently there was an alien civilization that was capturing humans and locking them in like stasis pods. And the crew of the Enterprise actually found where they all were. It might've been, it was actually Voyager. Sorry, strike that. It was Voyager. (laughs) And they actually found them out in the Delta Quadrant and they woke them all up. And it was Amelia Earhart. There was a Japanese soldier and there was a few more people that they had captured from the 18th or the 19th and 20th century. And that could also be where Amelia Earhart ended up. What's (laughs) what's the captain of uh, the Voyager? Oh, that was um, Janeway, Captain Janeway. Yeah, damn you, Janeway, give us Amelia back. Yeah, all the way. I think I think the that one was like in like the twenty third century or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, so that could also be, and that goes along with the uh, the whole alien theory. So it might be a fifty fifty. Who knows? Who knows? We probably, honestly, we'll probably never find out what truly happened to poor Amelia Earhart, but. Uh, but she lived a fascinating life, and I think she's just, I, I don't know, I find her fascinating. I think she's uh, amazing. Now, if anybody wants to let us know how they feel about Amelia, where can they do that? Well, they can hit us up first off uh, by email. They can actually go now to our website at www.subliminaldeception.com. There's actually a link there that really easily takes us to our email. You just kind of fill in the information, put in the message and hit send. Uh, if you like to do it the old fashioned way with uh, just your regular email account, you can email us at subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, really like to hear from people. Uh, it's been, you know, great ever since really uh, we've ramped back up after the whole COVID shit lockdown. People are really starting to get a hold of us now. Uh, they can also hit us up on our Instagram subliminal deception podcast on ig uh we also have our own instagram accounts minus sd pod phil and cody you got one yeah you can follow me at cody's above on instagram hit me up follow me talk to me do whatever you want uh the other thing we need you guys to do if you enjoy the show consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subliminal deception or You can log on to our website at subliminaldeception.com, and there's a direct link to our Subliminal Deception Patreon. Phil and I are working behind the curtains on releasing more and more content on there. Um, We have definitely the, well, at this point, we have two Amazon Prime watch-alongs now available. We have the Time Traveler from 3036, and we now have the Walking with, or I Believe in Dinosaurs, or We Believe in Dinosaurs, which is absolutely fantastic. I would give that one to 10 out of 10. Definitely. Uh, The other thing we need you guys to do, if if you are an iTunes listener, please log on, leave the show a five-star review, preferably written, doesn't really matter what you say. If you're a Spotify user, just hit that follow button, and you'll always be updated when we drop the newest episode otherwise guys i hope you enjoyed this episode maybe it was a learning lesson for everybody and we learned a little bit more about one of america's 
heroes, Amelia Earhart. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.